0: Is that loud enough? Can you hear me in the back? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I do metta, or when I pray, I pray with a rattle. And I want to pray. all beings everywhere have the same opportunity as we do to come together and share our experiences, our truths with each other. It's a very rare blessing and a very deep one. May all beings everywhere, in all the realms and all the lands, be able at some point or another to experience this blessing. May any of the merits that come about from this sharing tonight, may they be shared with all who could gain and benefit from them. I've been told there are a lot of devas that come and live around IMS because they love to hear Dharma talk, so this is for them as well. (laughs) I brought this rattle as well because I wanted to start tonight with a story. (laughs) This fall I felt the need to go on a vision quest, which is really like a meditation retreat except you're out by yourself alone in the wilderness and um, and you're fasting I didn't fast totally because I can't afford to lose a lot of weight but I did mostly fast <coughs> I took this rattle with me and um, I went off and met with the group of people who were vision questing I had deep um, questions I wanted to have answered answered should I should I get married that's a big question should I continue to teach because I was very poor and didn't have any money and a couple of other questions that seemed big enough to warrant doing a vision quest <laughs> I got to the place and the first day we we set up a medicine wheel and the um, uh, person who was facilitating the vision quest for all of us spent quite a lot of time talking about safety procedures because you're out there alone in in the forests in this case and you never know what can happen. And um, she mentioned that we were to find our spot where we were going to spend the next three days praying the next morning and that we should leave as, as soon as she had blown the whistle and come back in an hour. And I was aghast, an hour, just an hour, to find my spot. <laughs> this was the spot where I was going to pray and get my visions. And I knew absolutely that an hour wasn't going to be enough because we were in this forested area, really forested area. And I don't like being in forests that much.
1: LAUGHTER <laughs>
0: And I knew I couldn't really pray in a forest, and I had to find an opening, some open spot with view and the sun to really do my praying. And I asked her if there was any way that I could have some more time, and she said no, she thought that all we needed was an hour. So as soon as that whistle blew in the morning, I was up out of bed and I was away. I was zipping up this hill. It was kind of mountainous. I was zipping up this hill looking for a clearing because I knew I only had an hour. And I zipped up one sort of hill and down another and followed creeks and I have to say was slightly attached and a bit frantic about finding this spot.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and I really didn't find any. And it was about an hour. I thought I was close to an hour and time to head back. And so I started to turn back and walk down and up and down. And I kept thinking, no, this is the right way. I'm sure this is the right way. Maybe I walked a little further than I, than I should have. And about half an hour later, I thought, well, maybe I'm really was, I'm much more off than I thought. I, in my zeal finding the perfect place had not brought any water with me I didn't bring any extra sweaters or coats with me or any food with me plus it happened that I was a little sick I had the flu and I had a fever <laughs> and I started to realize that I was in a pretty tricky con- um, predicament another hour went by I was sweating and exhausted and had finally reached a huge river that I knew was nowhere near where the original spot was.
1: <laughs>
0: I was frantic. I sat by that river and I was like, well, should I go this way, or should I go that way, Well, which way? And I would clamber up some rocks and slip, and it was like, no, 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 that doesn't feel right. Well, there must be a road somewhere. It's not like I'm in the total wilderness well how far, I mean, maybe it'll be miles and miles, and do I have the energy to make it, and is this water safe to drink? And I was really thirsty, and I scrambled down some more rocks, and finally I got that I was really in a bad way, <laughs> and that I could die, that it might take a rescue squad, if she sent out for a rescue squad, days to find me. It was a thickly forested area, and that I was very cold, I was dehydrated, and I didn't have any food. And I saw my attachment. I saw my attachment so clearly, and I felt so remorseful. (laughs) (laughs) And I sat down, and I knew that if I was going to live, I had to surrender. And I had to surrender into the belief, into the knowledge and the connection, that I knew where to go that I really did know and I lay down on the rocks and I surrendered. I totally let go and I tuned into myself. It was as though this bolt of lightning flashed through my body. It wasn't a particularly gentle one. It said "Arena, get off your ass right now and go up that hill. (laughs) And I did. And I was very clear, as I walked up this hill, that it was the right hill to go up. And every now and again, I would lose the connection of some energy that I felt inside of me that told me that I was on the right path. And I would backtrack and step here and step there, no, no, and turn, and step here and step there, and get it and proceed. Eventually, I came upon a cabin. And the the people in the cabin were really sweet and gave me some water and drove me back to the original spot. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Last
0: evening, we took refuge in the Buddha. The first evening we took refuge in the Buddha We took refuge in that deep knowing that each of us has, that we indeed do have the capacity to know our way, that we do have the potential to come to healing, that we don't need to be any different. We don't need to be men if we're women or women if we're men. We don't need to be white if we're African American or African American if we're white. We don't need to be rich. We don't need to to be ascetics. We don't need to be monks or nuns. Just ourselves is enough. Just ourselves is enough for each of us here sitting right now tonight has the potential to find the way to come to healing to open to our true selves I rattled for 3 nights and 3 days that's mostly all I did 3 nights and 3 days just rattle and I asked for a vision which is the traditional way around all my serious questions <laughs> I got such dharmic answers. (laughs) When I asked about getting married, it said,
1: you can get married
0: or not. The issue arena is, are you working with your attachment? (laughs) I asked about money, it said, it's not even really the issue. Check it out again. Check the question out again. (laughs) (coughs) (coughs) <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> There's a poem called Unbelieving in Mind by So Zenji, the third Zen patriarch. The perfect way knows no difficulties. It refuses to make preferences. Only when freed from hate and love, it reveals itself fully and without disguise. A tenth of an inch's difference and heaven and earth are set apart. If you wish to see it in front of your own eyes, have no fixed thought, either for or against it. To set up what you like against what you dislike, this is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of the way is not understood, peace of mind is disturbed to no purpose. The way is perfect, like unto vast space, with nothing wanting, nothing superfluous. It is indeed due to making choice that its suchness is lost of. Pursue not the outer entanglements, dwell not in the inner void, be serene in the oneness of things, and dualism vanishes by itself. The Buddha, when dualism vanishes, our ability to come to this oneness of being, to see and be the truth. But it's also true that it's very difficult. (laughs) That actually there's a lot of suffering. Someone spoke about it this morning. Well, there's tremendous war. What do I do about my aversion around it? There's tremendous pain, both inside of some of us and outside of us. The pain of wars, the pain of rapes, of murder, sexual abuse, racism, lynching, slavery, apartheid, religious wars. It's huge as we open our mind to it and really no different from in some ways the pain we experience in our bodies as we sit here, in our knees, in our backs, in the emotional states that we experience sometimes. It seems that life is constituted in such a way that there is enormous pain and difficulty in it. The Buddha spoke of this when when he talked about what is called the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, that there is tremendous suffering in the world. People that we love aren't with us, people that we don't like are. (laughs) especially those that breathe noisily behind us (laughs) or in front of us (laughs) isn't it true how much suffering over something like that it's big What has said the suffering, the suffering in the experience of these difficulties, of this pain, comes about because of aversion or grasping, greed or hatred. He speaks about these forces in what's called the second noble truth. Both the aversion and the greed are fed, fueled by delusion or ignorance or not understanding what the truth is. What is greed? What is desire, which is just a slightly lesser form of greed? We've all experienced it that wanting to hold onto the contracting around something, when one object becomes all-important and we lose connection with everything else, that feeling that you almost don't mind if you hurt someone or push someone out of the way to get to what you want. It doesn't have a lot of kindness in it. It has quite a lot of contraction in it. It doesn't have a lot of connection in it. It has quite a lot of isolation in it. We sometimes feel out of control, as though we are being carried by the energy. It sometimes feels like an addiction. When we don't get it, we react. Enormously strong feelings can come up. The same is true for aversion, for not wanting. Both these energies are fed by the delusion that what makes us happy lies outside of our process and the natural expression of that. i'm not sure that all of us here believe that our happiness lies in better houses or bigger cars maybe a little bit we wish our partners were different our sons or our daughters a little different at times probably a lot of us get caught in in aversion or desire when it comes to our own process when we want our process to be different than it is. And we usually want it to be different than it is because how it's being is unpleasant. Jack talked about pleasant and unpleasant on the first night. Many of us fall into the trap of thinking that if we can just collect enough pleasant sensations, enough pleasant experiences, we would have reached happiness. That this actually is realizing our full potential. And we really often fall into the trap of believing that when the experiences are unpleasant, it can't be truly true. It can't be realizing our own potential when it's this difficult, this unpleasant, or this hard. we find ourselves getting caught. John talked about it. Getting caught. Reaching for pleasant and pushing away what is unpleasant. Reaching for the rhythmic breath. Reaching for the pleasant high of a connection with the in and out. Pushing away the knee pain. Pushing away the thoughts. Pushing away the grief. The Buddha said in the Fourth Noble Truth, which is the way he laid out for us to come to realize ourselves, that if we're able to grasp fundamentally that we have no control over our process, no direct control, that there is No mechanism or self that can control who we are, this life we call me or myself, we begin to free ourselves from these mechanisms. If we come to see deeply that actually life, us, us here sitting, is a changing process, that there is nothing to hold on to or to grasp, we become freed of these mechanisms of desire and aversion. If we come to deeply understand that inherent in our existence is difficulty and pain, we are freed from these tendencies. That poem said, To set up what you like against what you dislike. Mm -hmm. To set up what you like (coughs) against what you dislike. This is the disease of the mind. The process that is us naturally is constituted of some things that are going to be difficult, that are going to be unpleasant, that we're not going to like. And the truth is we have no direct control over it. And really, isn't that what we're finding day after day as we sit with ourselves and work with our breath? Isn't that what we're seeing? And isn't it beautiful to see? Isn't it freeing to come to finally let go somewhere that we see it's not truly this terrible struggle that we're caught in. It's not truly where our happiness lies, but rather in the surrender to the truth. That we have to give up controlling, that we have to give up the battle of collecting pleasant experiences through manipulation. We keep thinking what we should be doing is following our breath, when really what's happening is we're sad and there's tears underneath. Some of us think we should be doing the schedule when what's really needed long walks on the three-mile loop and many cups of tea. Some of us think we should be battling to stay focused when really what is needed is drawing and singing. Some of us think we're right at our limit and all we need is to sleep when really what's needed is greater effort and concentration. What is our truth? Each of us has the potential to come to freedom and this potential is realized as we come close to see what it is that we, each of us here in this room, really need in order for this realization to blossom. And not to take anything as given, but to start to listen in, to listen in and to see what is it that I'm really doing right now? Is this what I need? Is this meeting me, or am I just following a schedule? We talk about opening to this potential and we've also talked about our difficulties and the suffering and dukkha involved. It seems like a kind of contradiction, doesn't it? On the one hand, the poem is talking about not making choices. It is indeed due to making choices that its suchness is lust. The perfect way knows no difficulties. And yet here we are talking about difficulties. Why are we here breathing the way we're breathing and focusing on it? It is a dance, it's not a linear relationship. But the cultivation of mindfulness is an important factor in bringing about the kinds of opening that allows us to hold our experience and our process without making the choices without falling into reactions of liking and disliking. Cultivating mindfulness is strengthening our ability to fall into this opening. And so it's true that we have this intention, not desire, but intention to meet our yearning by following or undergoing a training and a practice It need not be dualistic. (coughs) It nevertheless is a training. Truly believing we can heal ourselves demands the deepest commitment and the greatest effort to keep coming back to the present moment. There is no other way. There is no spiritual practice anywhere that talks about freedom and liberation without also in the same breath talking about coming back to the present moment. Coming back to the present moment to know, to be aware (coughs) of what is happening. There's a sutra called The Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And the Buddha said, we need to be aware of four different areas in our lives. Our bodies and all the experiences that make up this bodily process. The experience of pleasant, unpleasant and neutral the mental factors, or what we call feelings, and our thinking process, particularly as it relates to right thinking and the Dharma, or the truth and the way of realization. This is why the instructions in the morning have been the way they are. They are inviting us to come to know all the different aspects of our experience, to know them, to come to know our body and our mind. When we talk about mindfulness, we talk about training ourselves to come into a deep, continuous connection with ourselves that is not exclusive. And we found that using the breath is really helpful. And using the walking is very helpful. Not the only way. Singing counts, drawing counts, cups of tea count, long walks count. And sometimes they're predominant in our way. But there are times also for the breathing and coming into connection with our breath. I've asked many of you in the interviews, what are you experiencing in your breath? What are the physical sensations that you're experiencing? How do you know that you're experiencing breath? We're not talking about mindfulness only in a general way. We're talking about mindfulness in the sense of making that supreme effort to come into connection, to come into focus, over and over again to know on a very detailed way what it is we're experiencing when we're experiencing the breath. Or when we talked about experiencing the hindrances, what is it? Can you tell me? Could you spend half an hour giving me a detailed description of what it is to experience sadness? How it feels in your body? Does it pervade through your arms and hands and legs? If it's a mood, how would you describe that mood? When does it tend to disappear? Where does it first disappear from? Starting to come to know ourselves deeply and intimately in very exact and precise ways allows us or opens the door into that realm that we call non-dualistic. The process is non-dualistic as well if we keep holding the understanding that we're not Going somewhere, we're not getting enlightened, but rather meeting ourselves in the invitation for our opening. Started with deep breathing, turning, sighing into singing. Mind split, left side turned brilliant red, right side turned brilliant white. Left side, voice was sexuality, rhythm was percussive, even beat. Movement was jazz style, angular, playful. Pulsating movement of hands, hips, shoulders, feet. Right side, voice was pure, single, sustained note. Movement in sustained curves, high in the air. Mostly arms felt very pure. Suddenly I started to sing, holy, 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 sustained singing at first, gradually moving into the percussion rhythm of the sexuality beat. Holy, 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 became more and more absurd, empty-headed and meaningless. The dance movement became percussive, sexually aggressive, and as cold and mean as the original red of the left side. My whole body went brilliant red and the white left. I fell on my knees, I started to scoop up the earth. I kept saying, I am deep red, I am blood, I am pure red, rich blood, I am the earth passionate receptive alive. I rolled over on my back to receive the life energy from above and below. The dance became sustained, controlled, very powerful movement, very different to the empty float of the original holy, holy. Then my brilliant red body with its pulsating heart filled with consciousness and I became the heart. The energy of this heartbeat rooted to the earth suddenly spun off into sheer white spiritual energy. As I breathed in, the air transformed it into red blood of my body that I had that energy to send out. I kept saying, I am hot, red and white because I am so red I can be white because I receive the energy from the earth My red receptive blood can give back and transform itself into the white. Then the pulsating action stopped. I took a kneeling prayer position. I am because I am. I know this, and God knows this, and that is all that matters. I became a pink wild rose. My center's is yellow, my leaves green. I am merely here. No one sees me, no one needs to. I am rooted in the crevices of the rock. The winds of the open water blow through me. My face faces the sun and the diamond reflections of the open water. I am beautiful because I am life's creation. I am safe through this delicate, exposed landscape. And I know that I am. Taking the courage to dance our own dance, each one of us, to let the pulsation, the beat, the red and the white hot energies move through us, to open to the non-dual and to also become very humble In accepting our limitations, to know when we need to withdraw, to stop, to change, to back off, to find the place for each of us that is our resting place, whether it is the breath or the walking, the drawing, the surrendering into the schedule, or the letting go of it making more effort or letting go of effort. Finding where our natural limitation is because it is impossible to open into the opening without also knowing limitation, without also knowing who each of us really is and exactly how we work and what we need in this practice. Again, the key in the decision making is to become sensitive to the tendencies for aversion to come up or greed. To see when we move through our life, outside of this hall and in this hall, whether we're moved through some sense of holding and grasping, of contraction, where we lose the sense of connection of context, of deeper purpose and vision. Or if we're really allowing, if we're feeling kind, if we're feeling connected and in tune, centered, if we're feeling in relationship with. Because it is those latter qualities that are the qualities of mindfulness or that guide that takes us closer to the truth of who we are. This morning, when the question was, how do we work with aversion to war or desire for creativity, they're mutually exclusive if we're talking about healing. Creativity, our creativity, our healing, is not about desire. It is not about identification with desire. It is about the opening and the cultivation of mindfulness of the non-dual aversion to war is being caught in dukkha. I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Sister Quao Ngoc (coughs) Thunga is a Buddhist nun who worked during the Vietnam War assisting war victims and the poor and this is how she worked with war. In our work in the villages, we encountered many problems. Trialoc Village in Quang Tri, for instance, had been bombed by the Americans, and when we arrived there, we encountered an atmosphere of hatred, suspicion, and fear. But slowly, we won the trust and cooperation of the local people. We helped them build a daycare center, a school, a medical center, and an agricultural cooperative. Then the bombs were dropped again, destroying all our efforts. Fear, hatred and discouragement were widespread. It took us several weeks to gather our courage and then we helped the villagers rebuild the houses, schools and medical centre. Then another bombardment reduced all our loving efforts to ashes. After the fourth bombardment, it was hard to maintain our serenity. No one wanted to do anything except us. Except pick up guns to kill. But we practised mindfulness and we did the work of rebuilding again. <coughs> One night in september nineteen sixty six someone threw grenades into our headquarters in the Tho Ha District, a suburb of Saigon. One student Levan Vin was seriously wounded and he has been partially paralyzed since then. Several grenades were thrown into Tiknahan's room. It was difficult to remain calm in such a situation with the pressures of hatred and anger everywhere. One night in february nineteen sixty seven again grenades were thrown into the dormitories. A woman student Le Ti Vui, and a woman teacher Nagain Thief Wang Lien, a supporter of us from Quang Nagai who had stopped by to spend a few days with us died immediately. Another woman was hit with more than 600 fragments of grenade. Fifteen other students were seriously wounded. While caring for the wounded, we had to organize funerals for our two friends who had died. After one day of mindfulness by myself, I wrote the eulogy. We cannot hate you, you who have thrown grenades and killed our friends, because we know that people are not our enemies. Our only enemies are ambition, hatred, jealousy, and the misunderstanding that leads to such acts of violence. Please allow us to remove all misunderstanding so that we can work together for the happiness of the Vietnamese people. Our only aim is to help remove illiteracy, disease, and ignorance in the countryside of Vietnam. Social change must start from our hearts and the will to transform our egoism, greed and lust into understanding, love and commitment. We must share the responsibility for the poverty and injustice in our country. We deserve to believe in ourselves. We deserve to believe in our capacity. We deserve to trust our process of finding the truth. We deserve to honor our efforts, all our efforts we've made thus far in the retreat and all the efforts we continue to make. We deserve to honor the focus that we bring to ourselves through the days. We deserve to honor our understanding that keeps fueling and feeding us in this endeavor that we're on. Life is sacred. Love is sacred. Understanding is sacred. And this is our natural inheritance. May all beings everywhere come to realize their sacred nature. Let us sit for a few moments. Are there any questions or responses or anything that anyone feels moved to say?
1: We both know the truth, where we said that we have no control over the phenomenon that is called our life.
0: Direct control, so yeah. Control. Yeah.
1: There may be a temptation yeah. to conclude with nihilism, but I don't think the Buddha would agree with that. Would you that? Um,
0: You know, I don't know. What is nihilism?
1: Um, nothingness, you know, it, it's hopeless. You have no control, therefore, just give up. Yes.
0: And Could you say why you're asking the question? Is that something that you're experiencing yourself?
1: No. Oh, okay. The Buddha does not support that. Right.
0: Right, right, right. But I know that that could be a conclusion. Uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. If that is not a conclusion, what is? That I'm sitting up here. Um, I was asked, if, um, if it's true that we don't have direct control over our experience, can't that lead to feeling hopeless? My honest answer is that I have to say sometimes I have felt hopeless. <laughs> um, it's definitely some, one of the feelings that I've experienced in my life. Um, but it's never lasted too long thanks to the law of impermanence (laughs) 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 and (laughs) it is (laughs) in connecting deeply with this law (laughs) that gives me the strength and the open heart to surrender (laughs) to the process of opening to hopelessness but not getting lost in it. (laughs) Um, I think one of the reasons that I spend a lot of time talking about the first refuge that we are, each of us here, Buddhas, is because it's been very challenging to continue to deeply trust in my own possibility for healing, especially as um, a survivor of um, severe childhood abuse, that I've worked with tremendous amounts of pain, and when we work with very difficult situations, it's dukkha, it's the first noble truth, it's extremely painful, and it's very easy, it's very easy to become very contracted and in deep states of aversion to the pain, It takes tremendous trust in that refuge. It takes a deep, deep um, surrender into the yearning we carry in our hearts for freedom to walk the path of opening to the pain and to the hopelessness sometimes, and yet to have it be just part of the path, you know, and to um, keep coming back to that refuge that we can do it. And the second reason that I'm sitting up here is because there is something I've been able to do that has helped heal me. And that doing has been the practice of mindfulness, of morality and of right understanding. It is tremendously, tremendously healing. I would be dead. I would be dead or in a mental hospital if I didn't have this practice. And the practice has given me a lot, a lot of hope. given me a lot of hope. It's It's been extremely healing, and that's why I'm here sitting, saying the things that I am. So thank you for your question. That's my reply to it. <laughs> okay, one. Yeah. Uh, it seems that this
1: is the second time you've that that question is about the person And I've been thinking, along lines kind of similar to what this gentleman just said, that uh, if, if, for example, I refuse to set up, if I really simplistically and liberally refuse to set what I like against what I dislike, I can't even go to the elections. And yet I'm sure that that's not what is really intended. So that I also am wondering if maybe these doctrines, th- these formulations, don't mean what they simplistically seem to mean. For example, the who is text You read, she said she wanted to uh, replace illiteracy with literacy. That seems to be a form of setting what she likes against what she doesn't.
0: So, um, can I ask you, for you, your experience of, of um, being participating in a healing? How would you describe that? How would you describe that as in distinction from liking and disliking?
1: Well, um, what I've been thinking as I sit here and listen to this discussion is that uh, the practice that we're doing here will help me to set what I like against what I dislike in so a more intelligent and healthy way.
0: Right, right. When 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 we start to be moved from health, from that sense of what is healing and what is intelligent or useful, then then you're absolutely right. It becomes close to what the nun was doing. And what I'm saying is that that energy, which I describe more as mindfulness of connecting, of of remaining in contact with our deeper purpose, of being in relationship with, of knowing, that relationship is actually quite different from the liking and disliking that is characterized by clutching, by obsession, by losing context, by losing relationship. You really liking that liking and disliking? (laughs) No, no, wait. No, can I stop you? Let me stop you. Okay, I just want to stop you. (laughs) I think what you're saying speaks to the fact that it's often very difficult to distinguish what our truth is, what is being inspired from our heart, and what is being inspired from liking and disliking. I think that's really true and often I found myself doing something that I thought was being inspired from my heart and later I found to be inspired from liking and disliking. So I just want to say it's one of it's one of the most important reasons to come into being aware in a very deep and intimate way with our process because the results that come from moving out of an reactive liking and disliking are very different than the results that come from a deep connection of intimacy and heart. And that if we are inspired for healing for ourselves and for the world around us, then we need to start to be able to distinguish where our actions are being inspired from and that's why we're here. And that's why we're doing the practice, is to come to know the difference. So that really we end up being peace and creating peace, as this woman was able to. And we're not unconsciously continuing to serve the, the fields or seeds of destruction. And with that, I'd like to bring this evening to a closure. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> Let's just take another moment.